Good morning. All right, we pick up. We have a lot to cover today. The title of the sermon is Israel and the Church. Israel and the Church. And I'll remind those who are members, there is a church meeting after uh, service this Sunday. Uh, it will be our State of the Union, our annual... No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it is our annual meeting of the first of the year that was moved back because Waihu, the church plant, was launched, and so it's been delayed, so now it's here in February. So I encourage you to stay after for some updates and things going on. All right, so let's see. Who, who was baptized as an infant? I'm going to ask for who was baptized as an infant. Not, not a bad thing, all right, necessarily. Okay, good. A lot, a lot of you were baptized as an infant, a number of you uh, as a baby. How many of you maybe grew up in a Lutheran church? Okay, good. Anglican. Any Anglicans? Catholic. A few Catholics. Uh, let's see, Presbyterian. Ooh, a few Presbyterians here. Sweet. Uh, Dutch Reform. Any Dutch Reform? There's some of that here. I don't see any of those. Now, understand... Uh, all of these, to some degree, these various traditions, denominations, and backgrounds, all of these, to some degree, flow as a direct result of the things we are talking about concerning Revelation. What is the nature of Israel to the church? What is the nature of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to the New Testament or New Covenant. What did Jesus actually accomplish and what did his work do and how does it impact the people of God? These are all relevant questions. So when we talk about baptizing of children or of infants, please understand it is more than just what does the verb baptizo mean. It's more than that. It is a covenantal understanding of the New Testament, and all of these things are directly related and tied to what we've been discussing the past week and few weeks. It also all feeds into your understanding of the end times of the book of Revelation. And so we've been taking some time. We've been, if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been working through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've camped out, if you will, the the glory cloud has settled on chapter 7 for a bit, and we are waiting for it to take up and move to chapter 8, uh, which will happen two weeks from now. But we've been camping here, and we've been examining the nature of the relationship between Israel, the nation, and the church. We saw last week, and we have seen time and time again, some say they are two completely distinct groups of people. And that God has a plan for each, that God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for church, for the church. And that God's plan for Israel is on hold right now, that the church is a mystery, uh, so to speak, not revealed in ages prior. And this is a time of the Gentiles, so to speak, is what they would say. And that they are totally separate. That's one very popular strain of teaching in our day. Others say that the church is Israel, is a continuation of Israel. 
And this would be flooding some of these teachings would result into the the practice of the Roman Catholic Church, of uh, some Reformed Anglican churches and things of that nature. Some of that does flow into why they are structured the way they are structured. They see the church as Israel. And so there's almost complete continuity between the two groups. How we answer this question has massive implications to how you read and understand the scriptures of a whole and definitely has implications for how you approach revelation and definitely has implications for how you understand modern day events in 2019. Let me give you an example. Should we stand with Israel because they're God's chosen people? On the world stage, is the prosperity of our country tied to our foreign policy on the the nation of Israel? Many would say yes, because God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You see how this is tied directly to our modern day society. So, this is not abstract in the least to ponder these things. We won't address every relevant passage today, but we will address a substantial amount of them uh, today and throughout our time in Revelation. Today, what I want to do is expand on what we began last week and lay a framework of understanding that I think is more in line with the Scripture's unfolding drama of redemption. So let's pray and get at it. Father in heaven, We do desire to see that Christ is glorified accurately and that your people are built up in truth. And so would you help us now with your Holy Spirit? Would you guide us into all truth? And we do want to lift up not just our church this morning, but also Waihu Community Church in their third week. Would you be with them as the gospel is preached there? Would you do a mighty work in Waiehu? We also lift up the Tanakas who cannot be here. We ask that you would continue to have your hand on baby Paxton and that he would grow and form day by day, week by week, as you designed him to do. And would you protect them, we pray, and bring them back in your time. We ask now that as your word is preached, that it would not return void as we know it will not. Would it accomplish that for which you sent it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, here's the big idea this morning. I believe it will be up on the screen. Here's the big idea. The church does not replace Israel. Neither is it entirely separate from Israel. The church does not replace Israel. Neither is it entirely separate from Israel. The church, consisting of ethnic Jews and Gentiles, is united to its covenant head, Jesus, the true Israel, and as such, inherits all the promises of God in him. The church, consisting of ethnic Jews and Gentiles, is united to its covenant head, Jesus, the true Israel, and as such, inherits all the promises of God in him. I have four points this morning. Number one, a chosen people, a chosen people. Last week, I said our understanding of ecclesiology, that is, our understanding of the church, has to flow out of our Christology, our understanding of Christ. So before we can understand the relationship of 
Israel to the church, we have to understand the relationship of Israel to who? To Jesus. To Jesus. And I tried to unfold some of that for you last week. If you missed it, you just go back to last week's sermon, Salvation Belongs to Our God. But today, let's unfold a little bit about Israel. So Israel was a chosen people. They were chosen to be God's agent of redemption and special treasure. His agent of redemption and special treasure. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it'll be on the screen. Most of these verses are going to be on the screen for you this morning because there's a lot of them. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, we see this already with Abraham's call. The, the idea of this agent of redemption and his treasure. So check this out, uh, the call of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's an important word there, land, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. There it is. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what I want you to see right here, from the beginning, from the beginning, God has a global purpose, doesn't he? In Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, later his name would be changed to Abraham, would be an agent through which God would ultimately bless the world. Deuteronomy 7, 6. We're going to jump right down at the second sentence. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord your God, he's talking to Israel now. He's called them out of Egypt, right? This is after Abraham, long time after Abraham. Uh, and he says, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So there it is. They are a chosen people. Uh, his special, his treasured possession, and an agent through which God would bless the world. You got that? That's at the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. Now, remember, I suggested last week that just as we saw the entire law and all the elements associated with it foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus, so too is the role of national Israel. You copy that? As we saw the whole law, the, the sacrifices fulfilled in what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the promise of Sabbath, of the Sabbath rest, is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes and, and gives true and final rest to his people. The, the pillar of fire, Jesus came and says, I am the light of the world, right? You remember, all of these things are, are shadows pointing to Christ and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene and he's radical because all the prophets before him said, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. That's what the prophet said. Jesus comes on the scene and says, turn back to me. You see, Jesus can say that. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of all of the Old Testament hopes, promises, for the nation of Israel. So he says, turn back to me. And so just as all of those elements pointed to Jesus, foreshadowed the coming of Jesus, so too the role of national Israel. This is how the New Testament writers understood it. Last week I, I gave you even more examples than what I just rattled off just now. Uh, today I want to give you just one to refresh your memory. Exodus 4, 22 through 23 is going to be up here as well. This is 
the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to Moses. And he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. You see that? He's likening the nation of Israel to his what? His son, his firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Hosea 11.1, the prophet. He says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my what? My son. So you have now the Lord likening his nation of Israel, his treasured possession, his chosen people as his son. And now I've said this is all foreshadowing the coming of who? Jesus, the unique, only begotten son of God. Matthew 2. Now we're in the Gospels talking about Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. This is talking about his flight into Egypt when Herod tried to kill him. Very parallel with Moses, isn't it? Hmm, another type foreshadowing of what would come. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's Hosea 11.1, 1, which we just read. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called what? My son. But wait a minute. Hosea was talking about who? The nation of Israel. But, but who is Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Why? Because all of these things pointed to, paved the way for, foreshadowed the coming of Jesus. So keep all that in mind as we move forward and as we discuss the land promises, which always come up, and other aspects of this. That's number one, a chosen people. Number two, number two, this chosen people received a divine promise. Number two, a divine promise. In Genesis chapter 12, there are two promises associated with God's promises to Abraham. Two promises later associated with God's promises to Abraham and Israel later, as it would inherit the promises to Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Well, it's actually in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, uh, from your, go from your country to a land that I will show you. So the two promises are land and seed. Land and seed. I will make your name great. Genesis 17, 8 restates the promise to Abram. I will give to you, and here it is, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So there it is. That's the land promise. Do you see that? So many would say, especially who identify with the dispensational uh, understanding of this, that God promised the land to Israel as an everlasting possession, right? So God has to deliver it, right? So that's a promise. He's faithful to his promise. So they would see the 1,000-year reign of Christ mentioned at the end of Revelation, and that's the only place in the Scriptures that the 1,000-year reign of Christ is mentioned as fulfilling God's promise to Israel for the land and the throne. You see? So a thousand years, Jesus is going to come after 
uh, the rapture, the seven-year tribulation. He's going to come back and establish his 1,000-year reign, literal reign on the earth. And they see that because they would suggest that God still has promises to fulfill to national Israel, namely that of a land. And so he will do that in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, that presents other problems that we're not going to talk about today, namely that it says it's an everlasting possession, not just a thousand years. But again, we're not going to talk about that today. That's the land promise. We got to do something with that. That's fair. Number two promise, seed or offspring. In verse two, God tells Abram, I will make of you a great nation. There it is. I will make of you, Genesis 12, 2, a great nation. So seed, seed. This promise is also restated in Genesis 22:18. after he offers up Isaac in obedience to God. God says this, and in your offspring, there it is again, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, I'm going to suggest that the idea that God is going to return to his plans for national Israel via a thousand-year reign of Christ to grant them the land does not do justice to the unfolding storyline of Scripture. That's my, that's my statement right there. So I'm going to suggest that that is a, an inaccurate understanding of the storyline of Scripture as it unfolds, that God will not go back to grant them a, a piece of land for a thousand years or any other period of time. Now, why would I say that? Because he just said it, didn't he? Well, why would I say that? He's not going to do that. We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. We'll keep going. Now, why would I say it doesn't do justice? I'm going to suggest it fails to understand what's actually happening with the land promises in Genesis. You have to ask yourself, what is going on with this land promise? I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you as an everlasting possession. What's happening in the unfolding storyline from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation? This is going to, you ready? Everybody get ready because this is going to blow your mind, all right? Serious. All right. What happened when Adam sinned? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In addition to that, they began to die, and they were immediately expelled from where? Eden. And what was placed at the entrance to the garden? A flaming sword. That's right. A divine servant with a flaming sword effectively doing what? Blocking their entrance back to the what? The garden, to the land that God had created for them. And then what happens is the drama of redemption begins to unfold in Genesis with the curses, and then there's a promise, isn't there? There's a promise that a seed of the woman would what? Crush the head of the serpent. And he would ultimately, this seed, land and seed, and through Abraham, he would have an offspring that would bless all the families of the earth, through the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, he would undo the effects of the fall. But bound up in Adam's curse was also a curse on the land, wasn't there? Instead of producing plentiful 
fruit and abundance of crops, now the land produces what? Thorns and thistles. And so God says, by the sweat of your brow, you will work the land, doesn't he? We experienced that yesterday for the fishing tournament. The land yielding thorns and thistles. So man's curse was tied to the land. And now what's happening with Genesis chapter 12, this is mind-blowing, is the land promised to Abraham is the beginning of the process to redeem and advance what was lost in Eden. You see, they were expelled from the land. They were expelled from life. And now God is working to undo both so that his people don't get death, they get life, and they don't get cursed land, they get plentiful land. The promise to Abraham is the beginning of this redemptive process that would be fulfilled and completed when God's people inherit the new heavens and the new earth, or in otherwise, the new Eden, which is exactly how Revelation ends, isn't it? With the tree of life and a river of life and God with his people. So it's been said, I quote, at every point in Israel's history, the promised land served as a place that anticipated, get this, the promised land served as a place that anticipated in Edenic terms, the Garden of Eden, in Edenic terms, an even greater land to come. Close quote. What is later laid out in the prophets is literally a reversal of the original creation order. Especially Isaiah hits this at the end of it. It's a reversal of the original creation order. Think about Genesis chapter 1. God created a garden, the world, a place, and then he created what? People and put them in that place. The actual end of Scripture shows a reversal. God is creating a people, giving them a new heart, redeeming them, calling them out. And then he prepares a what? A place. And so Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. In the new creation, God is creating a people and then preparing a place for them. Additionally, in the Old Testament... To be considered an inheritor of this promise, this is important, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, to be considered an inheritor of the promise meant mainly, but not entirely, that you were an ethnic Jew also. Right? To be considered part of that covenant people of God, the promises of God meant mainly that you were an ethnic Jew, but not entirely, not entirely. There were provisions made for Gentiles. As well as Israel was promised the land... They were promised the land so long as they kept God's covenant obligations. They were promised the land so long as they kept God's covenant obligations. Deuteronomy 28, verse 63, that'll be up here. This is literally a covenant treaty with the people, a formalized uh, entering into a relationship with Yahweh as their God. And this is, he's giving curses now. So the first half of Deuteronomy 28, he's giving blessings if they obey, and then curses if they disobey. Deuteronomy 28, 63, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, 
This verse will rack your brain for your understanding of God. So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So Israel was promised the land if they kept God's covenant obligations. Now some will say, but he promised to restore them at the end of Deuteronomy after a time and to bring them back. Yes, he did. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to see the the necessity for obedience for the land. Now, of course, we all know, did they keep this covenant? No, no, they failed miserably, didn't they? They were eventually expelled from the land, sent into exile. So let's summarize where we've been. We've discussed that Israel as God's chosen people, an agent of redemption as a foreshadowing of Christ and of the promised land and seed is looking for somebody or something who will crush the head of the serpent and reverse the effects of the fall. So far, so good. Number one, a chosen people. Number two, a divine Promise number three, a faithful son. A faithful son. And if you're wondering, man, why does all this matter to me? Hang in till the end. You'll see, it's pretty amazing, all right? Number three, a faithful son. The nation of Israel foreshadowed and pointed to Christ, the person of Christ, the obedient son with whom God is well-pleased and is fulfilled in him and is fulfilled in him. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were cracked open, and a voice came from heaven, didn't it? It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Teresa. Absolutely right. There's more going on in that than just his pleasure with the son now, isn't there? In the backdrop of Israel's disobedience, with the backdrop of Israel's idolatry, their lack of faithfulness now is a son with whom he is well pleased, isn't there? So Galatians 3.16, talking, so remember, what were the two promises of the Abrahamic covenant? Land and seed, offspring. And the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Wow. That is an important passage. Understanding all of this. Paul sees the promises of Abraham for seed, for seed, as being fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to see the same is true for the land, too, in a minute. So I walked through other New Testament threads that show Christ fulfilling the role of the Old Testament in my last sermon, so I'm not going to do it here, but it's worth stating here does God still have a plan for Israel? Yes, that is not debated. That is zero debate on that. Does God still have a plan for Israel? Yes. What is hotly debated, what is highly debated, is who constitutes Israel. Who constitutes 
Israel now in the new covenant. So God, I would say, God still has a plan for Israel, but who constitutes Israel is now focused on the person of Jesus Christ, the new covenant head. So yes, God still has a plan for Israel, but who Israel is is now constituted on the person of Jesus, the new covenant head. In other words, Jesus reconstitutes what it means to be Israel. Jesus reconstitutes what it means to be Israel. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, right before this passage. Galatians 3, 7. Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are the sons of Abraham? Those of faith. Those of faith. Galatians 3, 28 and 29, a little bit past this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, get this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Philippians 3.3, Paul says this. This is a great passage. He says, for we, talking to Jews and Gentiles, the church, we are the what? Circumcision. What was the old covenant sign of Abraham? Circumcision. And Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Repeatedly in the New Testament, Paul is driving home the argument that a true Jew, and this was actually laid in Deuteronomy. We don't have time to do this, but Deuteronomy also mentioned the circumcision of the heart. It's one of the central portions of the whole book, that those who were circumcised in heart would be conformed to the law outwardly as well, if it was true inwardly. And so he looked forward to a greater day when God's people would be circumcised in heart, and Paul says that day has come in Christ. We are circumcised by the Spirit of God in the heart. Additionally, we see titles and roles associated with Old Testament Israel now applied to the church in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9. This was one of our fighter verses, wasn't it? It comes straight out of Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see what just happened there? Peter just took that Old Testament title and applied it to who? The church? Galatians 6, 15 to 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. This is really important. What did I say about uh, the new Eden, the new creation? 
That has already begun in Christ. Who is the first fruit? Who is the first resurrected from the dead? Jesus. And he has all the properties of the new creation in his resurrected body. And he is a sign that the rest is to come. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the what? Israel of God. Hmm. Fascinating passage. I wish we had time to camp out in all of these, but he's talking to a mixed crowd again. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 that Mike Hennigan read this morning. 1 verse 5b, it starts in about the middle down here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kingdom, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, Old Testament title for Israel, what was once for the nation, fulfilled in Christ, now applied to his new covenant people, composed of Jew and Gentile. So, if we had to ask the question, who are the children of Abraham and true Israel of God today, the answer would be in Christ, you are. Now, does this exclude ethnic Jews? What about them? No. This does not, by any means, exclude ethnic Jews who trust in Jesus. It expands them to encompass people of every tribe and people and nation and tongue, which is exactly what we see at the end in Revelation, isn't it? A multi-ethnic throng worshiping the Lamb. A faithful son, number three. Number four, a glorious inheritance. A glorious inheritance. We have to address the land, don't we? So I've been pushing that on the burner, right? What do we do with the land promise? Because God's promises are irrevocable, it says. His, his calling is irrevocable. He must keep his promises. So what do we do with that land, that land promise? This is what's a hang-up for a lot of people. I hope to answer this, uh, another perspective on this this morning, and you can decide whether it does justice to the unfolding storyline of Scripture. So I suggested that the, the belief that says that a millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years, will fulfill God's promises to Israel as an everlasting possession of that land doesn't do justice to the unfolding storyline of Scripture, right? Why? Why would I say that? Here's why. Because the glories of the Old Covenant, as beautiful and wonderful as those promises were, and they are good promises, they are precious, are surpassed only by the glories of the New. Are surpassed only by the glories of the New. The promises God made to his people will not go unfulfilled. This is very important. If God breaks his promises to Israel, what does that mean for us? So this is really important. It's no small matter to have to wrestle with the land. It's not a bad question. It's fair. His promises won't go unfulfilled. Rather, in Christ, the covenant promises are expanded and advanced in every single conceivable way. The glories of the new covenant surpass the glories of the old and advance them in every single 
way. Let me explain. Now with Jesus as the true Israel, the true descendant of Abraham, how are all the nations of the earth blessed? Is it through the nation of Israel today? No. It's through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, the true Israel, to all the nations and demanding repentance and faith of all of them. And as all nations respond positively to the gospel, the offspring of Abraham is truly outnumbering the stars. Seed. Seed. What about land? How is a promise for the land fulfilled, expanded, and advanced in the new covenant? As we saw earlier, the land promised to Abraham was the beginning of the process of redemption to recover what was lost in Eden. Remember that? That was at the beginning. So the, the beginning of the land promised to Abraham is the beginning of the process to recapture what was lost in Eden. In the new covenant... The land promise is expanded from Canaan to encompass the whole earth. In the new covenant, the land promise is expanded from the land of Canaan to encompass the whole world, the whole earth. Imagine if I was the owner of Ford Motor Vehicles. Let's say my name was Pastor Randy Ford right? And let's say my son or sons and daughter one day walk into a factory with me. I take them to work and, and they, they walk into the factory and they see lots of cars. They see all kinds of cars, trucks and sedans and minivans and, and they see the, the, the Ford Broncos off in the, the corner. And my son, let's say, he says, Dad, I want I want a ranger. I don't know. I'm not a car guy. So you guys are like, a ranger? What? Right, whatever. Whatever it is. F-150, F-350. Dad, I want, I want that truck. And he's a little. I might grin and smile and say, son, I'll get you that truck. And in the back of my mind, I might be thinking, son, you're not only going to get that truck, but your inheritance is every vehicle you can see. In this entire room. But yeah, I'll give you that truck, son, when you're old enough. So it is with the land. God promises them a piece of land only to reveal later that their true and final inheritance is none less than the entire world. Am I making that up? Is that a stretch? It sounds good, but is it biblical? That's what matters, right? Psalm 37, 11, Jesus quotes this verse. This whole passage is about, big word, eschatological hope. Look it up later if you don't know what it means. It's about the Jews waiting for all the promises of God. And, and this is one of the things Psalm 37, 11 says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus quotes this in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to note there, the meek shall inherit what? the land, right? Just burn that in your mind. Matthew 5, 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit thee. Wait a minute, go back to Psalm 37, 11. Blessed, the meek shall inherit thee. 
land. Back to Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? Do you see what just happened? Did Jesus just have a slip of the tongue? Oh, I meant to say land. My bad. No, what did he just do? The glories of the new covenant expand and advance the promises of the old. So is it a lie? Is God being dishonest to say, I'm going to give you all of it? I'm not done yet. Romans 4, 13. Paul talking about Abraham. Abraham comes up a lot in Paul's writings. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the what? Of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Now, if you were to go back and search Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, all the places where God is promising Abraham things, nowhere at any point in those passages does he ever say you will be heir of the world. He says you will be a father of nations, many nations will come from you, but never does he say world. So in what way can Abraham be said to inherit the world? Why? Because the glories of the new covenant encompass and surpass, surpass, expand the glories of the old. One more. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. We all know Corinth. They were the divided church. He says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God. So he can say all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Beloved, the land promises are eclipsed and surpassed. The seed promises are eclipsed and surpassed. Not just a single nation, Israel, but you will be the father of many nations through Jesus by faith in him. Not just the land of Canaan, that little sliver of land, but all of the entire world will be yours in Christ. You have a glorious inheritance, Kahului Baptist Church. And so what I want to do is very briefly close with some application. I want to close with some application. By no means have we addressed all the matters pertaining to this topic. We still have Colossians 2, we still have Romans 11 about all Israel being saved, what do we do about that, uh, and being grafted back into the vine. We, have, we still have a number of things to address, but I, what, I, what I'm hoping is that you have a nice kickoff to understanding how we will orient ourselves to those things. And there are other legitimate, literal ways of reading the passage in its context and intended context to account for these things. But in, in closing application, I'd like to suggest a few things. Number one, if we are heirs of all things, 
And if our hope is firm and secure, let us be bold and steadfast, even amidst great difficulty. Even amidst national turmoil and upheaval and divide in the nations, let this anchor your soul. Or maybe you don't give a rip about what's going on in the nations. Maybe your life, your heart feels just in turmoil with your family, with brokenness and pain. Beloved, if we are heirs of all things, let us be steadfast, bold, even joyful amidst great circumstances, anchoring ourselves in this promise that no matter what happens, no matter what world governments may do or not do, one day, one day we will possess the world with Jesus as our King. So let us be steadfast in hope. Number two, if you are a child of Abraham by faith in Christ with the glorious inheritance beyond comprehension, do not set your heart on earthly affairs, on temporal things. Give lavishly to the cause of Christ. And KBC, I don't have to, to prod you hard in this because you have given your very selves. You have given one another. We, as we just sent out a number of our beloved to Waihu Community Church, thank you for your giving heart. And I ask still, give lavishly even more. Serve sacrificially. Serve sacrificially in this life. Make your time count for the cause of Christ. Make your retirement count for the cause of Christ. Make your family count for the cause of Christ. Make your free time, everything you have, to serve sacrificially. Say like the missionary William Carey, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God because this world is not our home. We seek a city whose builder and maker is God. Go boldly to proclaim this good news. For some of you, this might, this might look like joining a small group or coming to Sunday school, right? How do you, it might not look like, oh, you want me to be a missionary? No, it might just look like being faithful in the context in which you are in. Come to a Sunday school. Go to a small group. Learn who you are covenanted with and love them well. It might be more. It might be eating with a church family member two times a month, trying to find people to get to know and, and take them out to lunch or breakfast or dinner, inviting people into your life and loving them well. Others, it could look like a total altering of the trajectory of your life. Actually, it should look like that for all of us, that you would all cast your lot in with Jesus and the people of God. And finally, Maybe you're here, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've heard the good news your whole life. You might have even grown up in church, but you find that you are living for yourself, for your own purposes, trying to make your own way. Today, I would like to invite you, come to Jesus and find that you too can be a child of Abraham, heir 
of a promise that is incomprehensibly beautiful, and that is yours today freely in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in him? Let's pray. Father, your promises are precious and very great. Far be it that we should ever say you would not fulfill them, but rather you surpass our expectations in every way. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Thank you for the freedom from sin offered in Christ. Thank you for the invitation to all in Christ. And so I pray that you would draw many this morning to greater service, to greater love, and perhaps some to Christ himself for the first time. So would you do this and stir in our hearts this wonderful worship as we ponder our glorious inheritance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.